Amen. We're going through the book of Acts, and I do have an announcement that I would have forgotten, but I wrote it on the top of my notes. I think I'm getting more and more, I think this is a little loud, um, more and more forgetful as I get older. Maybe it's just I've got too many things on my agenda, but I find myself forgetting all sorts of details as I age. Good to see somebody else nodding their head. But remind you tonight that we are having a fellowship time at the Tullis' house. So it was on the screen, the address. We do have a Facebook. I don't do Facebook, so I wouldn't know how to find it or where it's at, but the church apparently has a way of announcing things. And so there is a Facebook that the church has and the address is on that. And if you have a bulletin this morning, the address is found in the bulletin as well. So we're going to meet tonight at 6.30. There's not enough time on a Sunday morning just to really fellowship with each other, to get to know each other, to talk. 
intimately with each other to talk about things that are on our heart. And a month ago, we had one in our home, and God blessed it. And it was a time for our church to come together as a family, and it was very open, and, and people dialogued with one another. And so we want to do that um, again this month, and we'll have one more in the month of June. So you'll be hearing more about that as time gets closer. But in, we've been going through the book of Acts, seeing how Christianity has impacted the Roman Empire. Um, Luke is the author, and he started out in Acts chapter 1, and verse 8. He said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. We are in Acts chapter 26, and we've been watching this unfold throughout the book of Acts. First in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. Later on, the gospel was taken to Samaria by Philip and confirmed by the apostles. Then the gospel was taken to Judea as persecution broke out in the early church. And they went scattered, preaching the word throughout Judea. And Christianity began to permeate the Middle East. But it didn't stop there. In Acts chapter 10, God calls Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. And then we get to Acts chapter 13. The gospel had gone to the city of Antioch in Syria. And they began to preach to Grecians. And so they send Barnabas, because he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He was a good man. He was an exhorter. He encouraged them to continue in the faith. But he knew that he didn't have all the spiritual gifts that were needed to see that church established. So he went out and sought for Saul of Tarsus. And when he found Saul, they assembled together for a whole year and they taught them the word of God. And that church radically changed the Roman Empire. The church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas. As they were ministering unto the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me, separate for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work which unto I have called them. And that local assembly laid their hands on these two men, identified with them, said, You are being sent from us. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they sailed off to Cyprus. They made their way up to Antioch of Pisidia, and then to Iconium, to cities of Lystra, Derby. Then they backtracked. And they ordained elders in every single church. And they began a new movement. He took his second trip to Corinth, Athens, Antioch, Berea, the city of Philippi. And they changed the whole region of Macedonia and Achaia. Now Paul, after his third missionary journey, is arrested in the city of Jerusalem. He's always had a desire to go to Rome. He's been arrested for sedition, for teaching traditions that are contrary to the law of Moses, for blaspheming the temple, and all of the accusations have been found false. But the Jews are intent on killing Saul. So he's forced to appeal to Caesar. Now they have no reason to uh, hold this man and they listen to his case and they say, we don't have anything to even write to Caesar because there's nothing worthy of bonds in this man. 
So King Agrippa and his sister, Bernice, they were well known in the Roman Empire, this incestuous relationship that they had, and it was a scandal, but they kind of flaunted it in front of everybody. So Agrippa and Bernice, who are Jewish in extraction and a little bit in culture, but very much Hellenized as well, were familiar with a lot of the things that happened concerning Jesus Christ. Herod's father, for example, he's the one who put to death James, the brother of John, with a sword. He's the one who arrested Peter, so he was very, very familiar with Christianity. His great-grandfather is the one who built the temple that took 46 years and was the Herod that tried to destroy the infant children. It was the next Herod, his great-uncle, that put Jesus on trial. So he was well aware of all the Jewish interactions with Christians. And so Paul says in this address, his defense before King Agrippa, he says, I find myself happy to address you, Agrippa, since you know all these things concerning the Jews and you're very familiar with our culture, our beliefs, our hopes, and a Messiah. And so at the end of this dialogue with King Agrippa, King Agrippa comes and he makes a profound confession. And this is my topic today, proofs that will persuade the truth of Christianity. Our faith is not based on a blind hope. Our faith is not based on feelings alone. Feelings are important. The Holy Spirit uses our feelings. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our need for a Savior. But our faith doesn't rest on our feelings because my feelings change quite often. Our faith does not depend on our performance, how well I keep the laws of God, because I fail every single day. Our faith anchors and is hold, held by the historical fact that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, that he bared every one of our sins on the cross, that he died because of my offenses. He died for your offenses, but he rose again for our justification. We can have complete righteousness imputed to us, put into our account because Jesus Christ died in our stead. And he gives us his righteousness as a free gift. Now, is there evidence to support that belief? Do I just take the Bible at face value? Yes, I do. I was privileged to go to a graduation on Friday night and Dr. Gores was the keynote speaker. You could wrap up her speech in one sentence. The Bible alone is sufficient for your life. It was wonderful to hear in an arena of 45, 50 people who never probably go to an evangelical church to hear someone say, this Bible has all the answers to life. And amen, it does. The Bible has... And so I'm going to talk about some philosophical ideas, some scientific discoveries, and some plausible evidence, but it's all found in the Bible. 
The philosophical arguments for God, the philosophers did not invent them. God did. The scientific evidence, the proofs for God. The scientists are only discovering what God has put in our DNA. There is so much information in one grass seed that it would fill an entire library. Every snowflake that you look at is unique and designed differently. The air that we breathe, the mountains that we look at, what is that called? Well, the theologian's got a fancy, a fancy name for it. It's called the cosmological argument for God, the cosmos. We just call it common sense. I was talking to two men on a road trip to a track meet this week, and I was sitting in the back seat working on my notes, and neither one of these men are, are believers in the biblical Jesus, but they know me, and they like me, and I like them, and we've got a good friendship. And I'll always witness to them, and they'll try to witness to me, and one of them looked back and said, oh, Patrick's working on his sermon. He's probably going to preach half of it to us today on the way up there. <laughs> and I said, I am. I said, I'm looking at the evidence for the resurrection and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. I believe in miracles. And the Bible is unembarrassed about miracles. Now, these people weren't uneducated. They weren't uh, unsophisticated. They weren't dupes. Like we look at all, you know, they had all their, their uh, superstitions in the past. These were intelligent, educated, well-informed people. And they witnessed miracles with their eyes and they believed them. God is performing miracles today. He hasn't stopped. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, they're not as common as they were in the first century. Why is that? Why were the miracles just at an explosion in the first century? You think about it. Who came to earth? God came to earth. Would you not expect an explosion of miracles when God came to the earth? I would. So my first argument today for the existence of God is the case from miracles. In Acts chapter 26, somewhere around verse 10, I'm not sure, but Paul looks at Agrippa and he says, why would you think it strange that God would raise the dead? Why would you think it odd that God would perform miracles? Would not you expect God who has all infinite wisdom, all power, would you not expect him to perform miracles? Miracles, by its definition, is a wonder of object, a marvel, because it suspends or breaks the laws of nature. I've already gone against what I told you I was going to do. I said I wasn't going to just shoot from the hip, but I've already given an introduction that's taken about 10 minutes, and I've got eight more pages, so just bear with me, folks. <laughs> I'm not good at this. I promise I'm not. A miracle is a wonder, an object of marvel, because it suspends or breaks the laws of nature. A miracle springs from the divine intervention this man for man's good and God's glory. But the most important thing about a miracle, miracles point to a self-revelatory thing about God. God is trying to speak truth into our lives through miracles. They're not just haphazard. When Jesus took the bread and he broke it, 
and he fed 5,000, that miracle had a theological point behind it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and he who hungers, let him come to me. And he proved that he could feed the masses because he is the living bread. When Jesus went to the graveside of Lazarus, he said, I am glad for your sakes that he died. And he looked up to Father and he says, Father, I know you always hear me, but for these people standing here, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Why? Because Jesus earlier said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. His miracle had a truth claim to it. And that's the importance of miracles. Moses was sent down to Egypt to deliver the children out of captivity. Those miracles had a purpose. Exodus chapter 12. God was bringing judgment on all the gods of Egypt. The gods of the Nile. The gods of the cow. The gods of the crops. The gods of the sky. The god of the sun. He could darken it. God could turn their river god into blood. Our God is omnipotent and all-powerful, and he was showing that he is the only true God. He raised up Pharaoh for this purpose, Exodus chapter 14, that the whole world might know that the God of the Hebrews is the God of Abraham, who God is going to bless every single individual on the face of the earth. He wanted every nation to know that there was a seed coming from the line of Abraham who is going to be Jesus Christ, who would take away the sin of the world. That's the purpose of miracles. Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Acts chapter 10 and verse 40. Jesus performed miracles in order to authenticate his claims, to show that he had power over the human condition as a result of sin. When the paralytic was let down, Jesus said, your sin is forgiven. He didn't even bother healing him yet. Jesus was making a claim that only God can forgive sin. And when he saw their faith, he said, your sin is forgiven. And they said, you've just blasphemed me. Who can forgive sin but God only? And so you know what Jesus did? He says, what is easier? What's the easier thing to do? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk? Well, anybody could play lip service and say, well, your sins are forgiven. You can't see that. But you can see if a paralyzed man gets up and walks. Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sin because his miracles were making a truth claim about who he is and his nature. John... Chapter 20 and verse 30 says this. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. John took eight. He said, there are so many. In fact, when he concluded his book, he used hyperbole here. He says, I suppose the world itself couldn't even contain the books. If you wrote down everything that Jesus did, you would write and you would write and you would write and you would write. But he said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. 
The miracles substantiate his authority that he was God incarnate, that he alone can forgive sin, and that he is our Savior. Miracles, far from discrediting the biblical record, substantiate the supernatural origin of its message. In fact, you would have no reason to believe any of Jesus' extraordinary claims. No reason whatsoever to believe that he was the Messiah unless he performed miracles. He went into the temple and he cleansed it. And they said, by what authority do you do these things? He says, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Now, if Jesus stayed in the grave, all of his claims would have been invalidated. I had a Catholic friend and he and I were running together in Ireland. We were talking about the claims of Jesus. We were talking about the significance of the resurrection. So he went to his priest the next Lord's Day and he said, Father, he said, is the resurrection to be understood as a real, literal, historical event? Do we have to really believe that? And I don't know where this priest got his theology, but he looked at him and he said, Ah, Amen, it's a spiritual resurrection. It's symbolic of what we all can experience through this wonderful new life through Jesus. So Amen came back to me the next week and he says, Patty, this is what my priest said. I'd let him have it with both barrels. No, I didn't. But I just said, I said, I said, Amen. I said, let's suppose I meet all these incredible claims. Suppose that I said I could forgive sin. Suppose I told people that I was the way, I was the truth, I was the light. No man comes to the Father but through me. Suppose I told people that I was the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What if I went around telling people that? He'd say they would think you were daft. I says, but what, but what if I said, you kill me and we'll go down to the graveyard and you find my grave empty? Would that make you think about my claims? And Amy says, I see where you're going with this. (laughs) You see, if that grave was still undisturbed, anybody on the face of the earth could make the exact same claims Jesus did. In fact, a lot of people have made the same claims but every one of their graves are filled with bones. But Jesus' tomb is empty. You see, far from discrediting the Bible, it actually shows that Jesus has the authority to forgive all sins. Why should we think it incredible with God to raise the dead? The Bible is quite unembarrassed as it records miracles. And within the incarnation of Almighty God... There's an explosion of signs and wonders. Nowhere in history of salvation would we expect miracles to be more concentrated than when God intervened in human history. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says this, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them under the law. 1 Timothy, an early confession of the Christian church, written before 60 A.D. This is what the church already believed. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifested in the flesh. It wasn't 300 years later that they decided that Jesus was God. This was the early belief of the Christian church. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. And so they're writing an early creed in 1 Timothy 3.16, God appeared in the flesh, was manifested or justified by the Holy Spirit, was seen by angels, preached among men, received up into glory. 
Now that was already a creed in the church before 60 AD. How do we explain the laws of nature then? Well, a philosopher named David Hume objected to miracles because the uniform experience militates against it. The law of nature, he said, operates at such a high rate of probability and there's such a low degree of chance for a miracle to occur, we should not believe it. However, the laws of nature are merely descriptive. The laws of nature describe what we see. They're not prescriptive of what has to happen. In fact, the prudent man, he's willing to examine what happened, not what's supposed to happen or what usually happens. There was another philosopher. His name was Anthony Flew. Now, I knew Anthony Flew, not personally, but I heard him speak and because my professor at Liberty Seminary was uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, and they would often have encounters with Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew, I'm going to read a quote to you from him prior to his conversion. Now, I don't know if he converted to Christ, but he converted to theism. He recanted all of his atheistic beliefs because he finally realized they cannot be substantiated. But he was convinced that Jesus Christ had raised himself from the dead after debating Gary Habermas on several occasions. But Anthony Flew tried to explain, expand on Hume's argument, but he also fails to prove that miracles cannot happen. This is what he said. He proposed that the laws of nature are constant and repeatable. And since miracles are not constant and are not repeatable, they should be rejected. But that is nothing more than circular reasoning. They're constant, and therefore they're repeated. They're repeated, therefore they're constant. They're constant. It's circular reasoning. You can't prove anything with circular reasoning. And furthermore, the whole point of a miracle is that it happens in the natural world. It happens outside of the natural laws. And if we didn't have natural laws, we would know, not know that there was a God. Where do natural laws come from? They don't come from randomness. They come from order. They come from decree. So the very natural laws themselves prove the existence of God. Miracles, by necessity, require the regularity and predictory, predictory, uh, predictability of natural laws. Otherwise, they wouldn't be miracles. Only an omnipotent creator can explain the order we live in. For those who deny miracles, they would have to believe in the greatest miracle of all, that the creation of the divine universe came from nothing. When we observe creation, we are observing the result of a miracle. You think about it. When your child is... Any of you dads in the, in the delivery room... I about passed out, but I got through one of them. <laughs> I got better as, as, as six of them what came along. But when you watch a baby being born, you are living in the presence of a miracle. And when they leave your home, you're experiencing another miracle. <laughs> I couldn't help that, Jordan. <laughs> Here's my argument. Here's the argument. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Would you agree with that? I think we all agree with that. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. 
the universe began to exist at a finite time in the past. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Logical deduction. We can prove this philosophically and scientifically, but more important, we can prove it theologically. Philosophically, we cannot have an infinite regress without a first cause. That's illogical. God didn't come from another God who came from a God who came from a God who came from a God. That's not the dilemma that the Christian finds himself into. The biblical God, according to Psalm verse 90, chapter 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So philosophically, God already knew that people were going to have a problem with the infinite knowledge of God. Genesis 1-1 is the best explanation for our universe and our cosmos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1-1 starts the New Testament writing about God being infinite wisdom and infinite mind, infinite logic. And the Greek word is logos. In the beginning was logos, the word. Infinite wisdom, knowledge, that was in the beginning, and the beginning was with God, and he was God, and everything was made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of man, and God's infinite wisdom became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of of truth. This is the God that we serve. There is no excuse for not acknowledging God's infinite power. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that all mankind is without excuse. You can't stand before God on the judgment day and say, God, you didn't make yourself clear to me. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare, the firmament speaks, day unto day utters knowledge, night unto night wisdom. There's no language, there's no voice where God is not heard. But what has man done? Man has worshipped the creation instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Why should we think it incredible with God to raise the dead? The Bible declares that God is both transcendent, beyond human understanding, and yet God is experienceable and personable. The infant wisdom is the Spirit of God that became flesh. He dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. So there's no problem with God, freely of His own will, who has brought time and space and matter into existence. If He freely and willingly intervenes in the laws of nature for His eternal purposes to bring about a living relationship with Him, why should we think it incredible with God that God should raise the dead? Philosophers have said that God must be timeless, spaceless, changeless, and immaterial. That's what philosophers say. They're finally catching up with the Bible. 
Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. The second thing Paul did in his talk to Agrippa that nearly persuades to him to become a Christian in a very, very short time span of time is he talked to King Agrippa about his moral need to repent. It's called the moral argument for the existence of God. I can tell I'm not going to get through this sermon today. I should have known better. The moral need demands the existence of God. So if you're in Acts chapter 26, I just want to bring your attention to verse 20 when Paul said, But I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do the works befitting of repentance. The word befitting is the Greek word axios, where we get the word axis. Our lives should be put on an axis, and we put God's glorious redemption on one side of that axis, and our lives should reflect and be befitting and worthy of all that Christ has done for us. Every single one of us, without exception, needs to repent of sin and turn to God and live a redeemed life. The moral argument goes like this. If God does not exist, just think of this for a minute. If God does not exist, moral values and moral duties do not exist either. Everything is purely subjective. Morality is only relative. We live in a world where no behavior could be said of it as being moral or immoral, evil or good, right or wrong. That's if God does not exist. That's the world we live in. However, B, the universe and all humanity agree that objective moral values and duties, in fact, do exist. What's that leave us as a conclusion? Therefore, God exists. This is a powerful argument because all people agree with those three premises. Without God, we are nothing but machines with no moral purpose and no moral value. However, with God, every human life is created with dignity and deserving of respect because we are created in His image. Dispense with God and you cannot explain truth, goodness, love, nor can you decry evil, hate, selfish ambition. Creativity is unexplained without a creator. Speech supposedly came from a mute universe. Beauty is nothing more than random atoms coming together by chance. Goodness, humility, kindness have no moral reference point. We all recognize these non-tangible elements coming from the mind and the will of God. Yet we do not see nor experience God as he intended us for to. 
The only moral solution for man's sin nature, the only solution for man's sin nature is to repent and turn to God. Because no other individual took your sin on your behalf and paid it in full. God is both just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Let's use a courtroom for an analogy. Let's say you're guilty of, I don't know, let's say maybe something small, speeding. And you've got a stack of speeding tickets. And you've got a good just judge in there. He says, Tracy, you have got a stack of speeding tickets about this high. you got a lead foot, girl. <laughs> <laughs> And Tracy says, I am throwing myself at your mercy. And she looks up, and it's the merciful judge, honorable judge, Patrick. And he says, Tracy, I don't want to you to go to jail, and I, I love you. I really do. <laughs> yes. And Tracy, I'm going to take my robes off. And I'm going to come down and I'm going to stand right next to you and I'm going to take my billfold out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> no, it's not empty. <laughs> I said, Tracy, here's everything you knew need to pay that fine. And I go back up and I put my robes back on and I said, Tracy, how do you plead? She says, Your Honor, I'm guilty. But someone was willing to give me the payment. It's paid in full. And I say, it is finished. Your court date is over. You are free to go. You have been declared right. That's what only Christ can do. So the moral dilemma, we've all sinned. We all agree that there's objective moral right and wrongs. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Honor your father and mother. I've only named four, and all four of them, we are guilty. And what do we deserve? We deserve God's wrath and hell. Jesus Christ cried on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now I'm going to have to close right there, and we'll pick it up next week with fulfilled prophecy, evidence from the resurrection, and the public display of Christ's crucifixion. And where did I get those from this chapter? Let me just share with you before we close where those came from. Fulfillment of Scripture. Go down to verse 22. Therefore, have obtained help from God to this day. I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those that the prophets of Moses said should come, that Christ would suffer. There are 270 specific prophecies concerning the person of Jesus and his suffering. I might go ahead and just try to wrap it up. I'm just going to give you the Reader's Digest version. 270 specific prophecies concerning Jesus alone. You know what the mathematical probability of that happening by chance? It's zero. I'm going to give you 10 prophecies. I'm going to give them to you quick. 
Two references, Psalm 41 and verse 9, Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, they talk about his betrayal. Those two verses give five specific prophecies that were concerning Jesus. One, that he would be betrayed by a friend. Second, he would be betrayed while eating bread with that person. He would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. The 30 pieces of silver would be thrown on the temple floor and that they would buy a potter's field. Just two verses alone give us five specific prophecies concerning his betrayal. Five more prophecies concerning his crucifixion. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 18. And Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Five specific prophecies concerning Jesus. One, that he would thirst and that his jaws, his tongue would cleave to his jaw and they would give him gall to drink. That his enemies would mock him saying he trusted in God. Let him see, save him now since he delighted in him. That's exactly what they said. They would pierce his hands and his feet. They would gamble for his clothing. They would pierce his side. All five of those prophecies concerning Jesus Christ were fulfilled. Not to mention, not a bone of his was broken because the Passover lamb was not to have a broken bone. They came to Jesus and rather than breaking his legs to facilitate his death, they found out that he was already dead. This was fulfilled by the, the scripture that said, not a bone of his should be broken and we will look on him whom they have pierced. Those are just 10 prophecies concerning Jesus, over 270. A scientist and I can't remember his name, it's in my notes, I'll give it to you later, but a scientist wrote a book called Science in the Bible. He was a mathematician, and he concluded that eight miracles alone being specifically fulfilled in one man that were given 1,000 years to 400 years before the man was ever born, the mathematical probability of that happening was 10, 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now let me put that in perspective for you. 1, in 10 out of, 1 to 10 out of 17, 17th power. Let's say that I took silver dollars this morning and I laid them over the state of Texas, the great state of Texas. That's, everybody knows how big Texas is. Everything's bigger in Texas. I took silver dollars. I would have to stack them two feet high, Barbara. And then I blindfolded Michael and I said, Michael, I have put an X on one of those silver dollars. I want you to go out and find it in the state of Texas. That's the mathematical probability of Jesus Christ fulfilling only eight prophecies. We are without excuse. Then not only would Jesus suffer, he would rise again from the dead. Just give me, I'll give you a really quick here. I know I'm going fast, so hang on tight. Five explanations for the resurrection. What do historians look for? Historians look for an event that is recorded early to the event. I don't know if that made any sense. If it happened in January, you don't look for it being recorded 100 years later. You look for it being recorded in February, okay? Now, what about the resurrection? What about Jesus? I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again according to the scripture. Then he was seen by Cephas and then by the 12. That's an Aramaic creed by the formula. Bible scholars said that that Aramaic Creed was written in 30 A.D. Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians in 55 A.D. The crucifixion happened in 29 A.D. That is not enough time for myths and legends to be introduced into the story of the resurrection. This is historical fact. This wind the clock backwards. Paul said, I received what I declared to you. When did he declare it to them? We can go back four years earlier than that. Because Paul was in Corinth in 51 A.D. 
How do I know Paul was in Corinth in 51 AD? Acts chapter 18 tells us Gallio was the governor of Achaia. That's when Paul was in Corinth. So now we're getting a little bit closer to the crucifixion. He was in Corinth in 51 AD. The Jerusalem Council happened two years prior to that in 49 AD. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. So let's subtract 14 years from 49 AD. Paul met Peter in 35 AD. We are getting so close to the historical event. There's no way that myths were introduced to this. We can push it back three more years because Paul said, after my conversion, I spent three years in Arabia before I went up to see Peter. That puts his experience of the resurrection 32 AD. You want to get it even closer? Let's go to 50 days after. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and said, You by wicked hands have crucified him. Him God has raised from the dead. This is not mythology. This is historical recorded facts for you and I. What else do historians look for? They look for multiple eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 said he was seen by Cephas. Then he was seen by the twelve. Then he was seen by James. Last of all, he was seen by me, a man born out of due season. Then he was seen by five, I don't know if I'm going to try to do 500, 500 <laughs> brethren all at the same time. And then he just says, go out and investigate because many of them are still alive to this very day. Many witnesses. Another thing a historian looks for, does it put people that you expect to be in a bad light, puts them in a good light? And what about people you expect to be in a good light, does it reflect them with all their flaws and all their pimples and all their warts? The Bible is frankly honest about both those things. A person that you would never expect to be put in a good life, good light, was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Both these men were council members that had Jesus Christ put to death. But what does the Bible say about these council members? They said that they were disciples of Jesus. They were looking forward to the kingdom of God. They were just and righteous men, and the pair of them went to Pilate and craved the body of Jesus and took it off the cross while his own disciples who loved him and professed him denied his name, cursed that they ever knew him, and were cowering in fear. This is historical record. Another thing that you would not expect unless it was actually historically accurate Women were the first ones who were eyewitnesses of the tomb. They were not even considered credible witnesses in the first century. So therefore, the Bible would have never included that in a part of its historical dialogue of the resurrection unless that's exactly the way it happened. In fact, when the apostles heard the story from the women, they said, these are idle tales and we don't believe you. Luke 24 and verse 11. One more thing about the resurrection. What good is a dead Messiah? They were waiting for the king of kings to throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire when Jesus died on the cross. All of their hopes for a Messiah was dashed with it. They went back to the upper room. They thought, it's all over. We're done. He is not the Messiah. When Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die and go to the cross, they tried to dissuade him. Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. This will not happen to you. He did not believe that his Lord would ever be crucified. Nor did he believe in a resurrection. He doubted the women. The apostles had to be convinced 
themselves. So you see, we have got overwhelming evidence today to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But don't let the evidence just sit in your head. It's got to transfer 18 inches. If you will believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. We as believers, what keeps us from telling people about Jesus? I've identified two things in my life. One is my pride. The second is my fear. And both those things are sin, and they can be repented of, and we can get victory over them. We have got such a wonderful message to tell to the nations. What Agrippa said is so, so moving. Paul, you almost persuaded me. In a little time, Paul, you have convinced me the truth of Christianity. And this is what Paul said. He prayed and he said, I would to God you were all together as I am. And Paul had a little bit of a sense of humor. He said, except for these chains. My prayer this morning is that no one would leave here doubting your salvation. But you would leave today knowing that Christ died for you. Christ raised himself from the dead for your justification and that you can know for sure that you're a child of God. If you're a believer today, my heart's desire for you today is that you will confidently, you will passionately and persuasively talk to people about the need for Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, I know today was a little different. But God, you use this for your good to grow us, to give us confidence in our faith. And maybe today if someone is just teetering on the edge, may they just say a simple prayer in their heart. This is all they have to say. God, I repent. I acknowledge I've sinned. God, I cannot save myself. I'm asking Jesus to be my Savior. Amen.